0: Praise the Lord. Great singing today, congregation, as we reflect on the work, the redemptive work of Christ that he has accomplished on our behalf through the cross. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's word and look with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, as we continue to make our way through this text of scripture. As you're turning to Romans chapter 11, let me just take a moment of personal privilege to extend a warm welcome to our good friends from seminary we entered that is we my family and i started southwestern seminary in the fall of 2004 which seems like yesterday before a number of you were even born and when we walked onto the campus the lord in his providence uh, just placed us right along aside a number of people and a family that we got closely connected to were heather and corey Corrick. when we first met heather and corey they had two children, and Heather and Cory now have 11 children, and are here from Missouri in two vehicles, and so obviously his family has greatly uh, expanded since we were young seminarians back in the day, but in all seriousness, Heather and Cory, Eric, and I have greatly benefited from our relationship with you guys through the years. Uh, Corey is, don't tell him this, otherwise he'll get a big head. He's an engineer, works in a fancy job. But in all seriousness, Corey was one of the sharpest friends I had going through seminary. He had a sharp mind and ability to think well and to reflect on the text of Scripture. And we're so grateful for your influence in our lives and glad to have you here at Woodlawn Baptist today. For those of you who work in the engineering field and have ability to hire people, you ought to hire this guy, bring him down to Baton Rouge, and uh, that'd be a great asset to Woodlawn Baptist. Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, as we conclude Romans chapters nine, 10, and 11. Might I just say before we start an exposition of this text of scripture, that I have been looking forward to this Sunday for about four months now. This might be the most exciting sermon I've preached in the course of the last several months. You might be thinking, why? Because bless the Lord, we will be finished with Romans 9, 10, and 11. For me, some of the most difficult work and exposition has occurred over the course of the last several months Yet it's been an absolute joy, I pray too, for your own heart, your soul, for our sanctification as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ together. Here in Romans chapter 9, excuse me, Romans chapter 11, we're going to pick up today in verse 28 and conclude with verse 36, and here the Apostle Paul concludes his comments on this important subject that began in chapter 9. You might remember in Romans chapter 9 verse 6, Paul begins his uh, his exposition here in 1911 to explain to us that the word of God has not failed in its promises toward ancient Israel. And Paul has fleshed that out in a number of ways. He's used some Examples. He's quoted heavily from the Old Testament text of Scripture. He's reminded the nation of Israel that the fault of the nation of Israel coming to faith in Christ does not lie with God. God has been faithful. God has communicated His Word clearly to the nation of Israel. The problem for the nation of Israel is they have not believed. Chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. Chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. God Himself has been faithful to the nation of Israel. And along this journey of God's incredible faithfulness to the nation of Israel, so too has God been faithful to his word, not only to communicate clearly and call the nation of Israel to faith in Christ, but also to call all people from all nations to faith in Christ. You might remember in chapter 11, as Paul used the illustration of the olive tree There is one trunk, there is one tree, that one tree has numerous branches. Some of those branches are Jewish believers, some of those branches are Gentile believers, and some of those branches have been broken off. That is, uh, branches that uh, were Israelites at one point, but yet rejected this message of salvation. And here, in Romans chapter 11, verses 28, through 36, Paul reminds us of this eternal truth. God is worthy to be praised. God is worthy to be praised because he has extended his mercy to all without exception. God is worthy to be praised because he has extended his mercy to all without exception. You might remember last week, Paul is wrestling with this idea of exactly why the nation of Israel at its present time is not believing in the person of Christ. And here in this passage of scripture, Paul seeks to continue to remind us as he did last week that it is indeed God's desire to extend his mercy to all Notice what Paul says here in verses 28 and 29. In verses 28 and 29, Paul reminds us that God's purpose in Christ, God's purpose in Christ is to extend His mercy to all without exception. God's purpose in Christ is to extend His mercy to all without exception. Notice how Paul argues here in 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, they. Now as we journey through here, you're going to notice a number of pronouns and you might be prone to wonder, who is they? Who are these they that are listed? I'm going to try to help us along the way. As regards, as regards the gospel, they, that is Israel. Israel are enemies of God for your sake. Israel is an enemy of God for your sake, Gentiles. But notice what he says at the end of verse 28. But as regards election, they, that is Israel, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the charisma, for the gifts, for the free gift and the calling of God are without regard or without regret, or as your Bible says, my Bible translates, irrevocable. Paul, here in verses 28 and 29, is reminding us, indeed, of God's purpose in sending forth his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul wants the church at Rome to understand that to the same extent Romans chapter three reminds us that all persons are indeed sinners, separated from the Lord Jesus Christ, so too through Christ has God extended his mercy to all people. As he begins to make this articulation, he reminds us here in verse 28, as it concerns the gospel, as it relates to this gospel narrative of the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ Israel is an enemy of God now this might sound somewhat surprising we have seen throughout our time period in Romans 9 10 and 11 how Paul uses this word Israel he uses Israel in a variety of different ways normally he doesn't use the word Israel to refer to all of ethnic Israel that is in the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11. He oftentimes refers to Israel when he uses this as Israel who is redeemed and the section of Israel who have rejected the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the context of this passage of scripture is he's reflecting on the gospel and who is the enemy of this gospel narrative It would be preposterous for Paul to be proposing that Israel that has believed is indeed an enemy of God. No one who believes in the sufficient death of the Lord Jesus Christ who by faith has trusted in Christ is considered an enemy of God. We're gonna notice in just a few moments from Ephesians. We'll look there in just a few moments. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul is reflecting upon the Gentiles. And he reminds the Gentiles that at one point in their lives, they were, guess what? Enemies of God. Who are the enemies of God? The enemies of God are the ones who have rejected Christ as God's sole mediator of covenant relationship with him. Friend, if you are here today, does it matter how kind and gracious you might be? Does it matter how loving or compassionate you might be? Does it matter how giving you might be? If you have rejected Jesus Christ as Savior, if you have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord, if you have rejected Jesus as the sovereign God, you are an enemy of God. We see this week great conflict that has transpired in the Middle East, particularly in Israel. And sometimes we see certain instances and it's easy for us to be able to say, well, that person seems to be an enemy. That person seems to be exceedingly Wicked, that person seems to be in every measurable way beyond redemption. But it's a much more difficult thing when we have to think about our own hearts and our own stance before God and us being an enemy of God. Doesn't that word enemy just carry a strong negative connotation in your mind. We don't like to think of our children as being an enemy of God. We don't like to think of our neighbor as being an enemy of God. We don't like to think maybe of our spouse as being an enemy of God. But friend, hear what Paul is communicating in the context of this passage of Scripture. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ to redeem your life, you are an enemy of God. And so Paul says, on the one hand, as it relates to the gospel, Israel is an enemy of God for your sake. It should be no surprise to us as we've been making our way through the book of Romans that Paul has used this contrast here in chapter 11, particularly, to remind us of this redemptive journey. God first called the nation of Israel to himself to be his people. And it was God's desire to use the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the other nations. Think of God's call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 or recommunicated in Genesis chapter 15. Think of the book of Jonah and God's passion to send Jonah to the nations so that Israel might be a blessing to the nations. But we know the story. Israel fells in her... um, Israel fails in the way in which God has organized her, and she is not a blessing to the nations, and so God calls himself these Gentile believers, you and me, and this is exactly what we're seeing take place in the context of this passage of scripture. Israel has failed, this message now has been extended wholeheartedly toward the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, and we might say, well, how in the world are the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, a blessing for the nation of Israel? For in the same way God used the faithfulness of the nation of Israel to communicate his goodness to the nations. So too is God using his redemptive people even now you and me to be a blessing, to communicate the beauty of the glory of God in Christ to those who do not believe. We have a responsibility to proclaim Christ to those who do not believe as Regards the gospel. On the one hand, concerning the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But on the other hand, as it relates to or concerning or regards election, they are beloved. They are the loved ones of God for the sake of their forefathers. As regards election, they, Israel, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Paul uses this verse to remind the nation of Israel that God is indeed faithful to his words. Have God's intended purposes concerning election toward the nation of Israel, toward ethnic Israel, have those promises? come to an end because of the coming of Christ. Have God's promises, the Old Testament concerning ethnic Israel, have they ended toward Israel because of the coming of Christ? Paul is clearly articulating a powerful gospel plea to the nation of Israel to say to them, please don't see the coming of the Gentiles in faith as God's rejection toward you. We shouldn't be surprised. Notice chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. I ask, then Paul writes, has God rejected his people? Has God's promises toward the nation of Israel come to an end? By no means. Then Paul explains, I myself am a a Gentile. It is no surprise to us that there were plenty from the nation of Israel who were coming to faith in Christ. Paul himself. The early disciples. Many who ran to the tomb on that day on resurrection Sunday to see the tomb empty. the The 500 who were preached the gospel after Jesus' resurrection and were eyewitnesses to it. You remember the day of Pentecost? How many were added to the church that day? You guys are quiet. 28, 28 thank you. There were 3,000 baptized. Who were, who were these 3,000? They were Jewish believers. It's not as though the gospel is not penetrating the heart of ancient Israel and thus God's promises, God's word to ancient Israel is not still being fulfilled. Paul is arguing here, Israel can still be saved. There is still incredible hope for the nation of Israel. Why? God is faithful to his word. Israel, as it regards election, Are still the beloved of God for the sake of their forefathers. You might remember all the way back to Romans chapter 9. Look with me in Romans chapter 9. Start reading in verse 10. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. There's a reference to one of the forefathers. We also come back to Romans chapter, stay in Romans chapter 9, back to Romans chapter 11 here in verse 28. For the sake of our forefathers, this forefather for sure would be an extension, a reflection back to Isaac. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, there's that word that we uh, saw from chapter 11, verse 28, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who names, because of him who calls, Regarding this concept of election that Paul mentions back here in chapter 11, verse 28, Paul is reflecting upon God's rich covenantal relationship with the nation of Israel. And God and God alone had a right to call to Himself, to name to Himself a people. In this case, the nation of Israel. Here in Romans chapter 9, you might remember our journey through here, 9, chapter 9 verse 11, and this idea of God's purpose in election that might continue not because of works but because of him who calls. Paul here is giving a robust defense of justification by faith. God alone. God and God only. God is the one who has the right to call to name for himself a people. In the Old Testament, he has chosen to do that by ethnic Israel. This is what he's referring to in chapter 11, verse 28. God, and God alone, had the right to elect for himself this people group. He had a right to elect for himself, to name for himself the nation of Israel. And guess what? His naming the nation of Israel had nothing to do with any act of work they might or might do, not do. This is what he's saying here in chapter 11, verse 28, again, as he reflects on election. On the other hand, election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. Not because God looked down into and, and history and said, man, there are some three good men down there. Isaac, Jacob, they're wonderful I can see right now they're going to do great things in my name, thus I am going to elect them to myself. Friends an understanding of justification and that means is absolutely contrary to what Paul has been arguing for the totality of the book of Romans. We are not justified, we are not called, we are not named based off of any good work in and of ourselves. We have nothing good to offer God. So when Paul says here in chapter 11 verse 28, but as it regards election on the other hand, they are beloved of God for the sake of their forefathers, Paul is reminding us of their forefather Abraham. Reflection back to Romans chapter 4. How was Abraham justified, made right, made righteous toward God? By faith. You see what Paul is saying, friends? Both for the Jew and for the Gentile, there is one standard. By which we are brought into right relationship with God, and that is faith. God, Paul argues here in Romans chapter 11, verse 28, God's purpose in Christ is to extend his mercy to all. That all includes. Gentiles that all includes the nation of Israel now notice what he does in verse 29 he grounds his argument he's going to give us the reason for why is it the case that the nation of Israel is beloved of God for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable now, if we were reading this text this morning from the Greek New Testament, that word that occurs in our text at the end, irrevocable, is fronted. Paul fronts this word in the Greek New Testament for emphasis, and it is though we were reading this text of Scripture and we came to verse 29, this word would leap off of the pages. It would be shouting at us, if you will, and Paul would be saying to us, without regret! Without regret, God isn't sitting in heaven, friends, and he's not wringing his hands thinking, what have I done? I've messed up with the nation of Israel. Oh my goodness! They didn't do what I called them to do. They didn't do what I have elected them to do. What am I going to do? No. God looks at salvation history And he doesn't say, my gracious, I have made a mistake. God looks out at salvation history. And as we will see, Paul concluding here in verses 33 through 36, God says, I have no regret. Why? God's intended purposes are being carried out. How? Through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without regret. God isn't saddened. Without regret, the gifts and the calling of God are still extended to the nation of Israel. Israel is not without hope of redemption. Isn't this the good news of the gospel, friends? This is the good news of the gospel of Christ, not only for the nation of Israel, but also for you and me. This is the good news of the gospel for your neighbor, for your coworker, for your children. None of us stand outside of God's redemptive call toward salvation. As it regards the nation of Israel, these gifts and this calling are irrevocable. They are without regret. They are still being extended to the nation of Israel. What are these gifts? Paul uses a word that you're used to hearing already in the context of the book of Romans. Look with me real quickly in two passages, in two chapters. Chapter 5, and then we'll look at one example in chapter 6. Chapter 5, let's begin in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. Chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Do you see the word gifts there? How is it presented? Chapter 5, verse 15. But the free gift. The free gift. What is the free gift? Salvation. What is the free gift? Jesus, verse 16. And the free gift... What is the free gift? Justification by faith. Notice again in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 23. Chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the what? The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Contextually, from the book of Romans, what is this gift? God's gift to all humanity is justification by faith. But Paul also speaks of other gifts that have been singularly extended to the nation of Israel. You might remember at the very beginning of chapter nine, Paul mentions all of these wonderful gifts that have been extended exclusively to the nation, to the nation of Israel. He also does that in Romans chapter three. Listen to Romans chapter three, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the gifts that God has extended to the nation of Israel that he doesn't regret? He's given them, he's given the nation of Israel his word. What are the gifts that God has extended to the nation of Israel that he doesn't regret? Notice chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. The gifts that God has extended to the nation of Israel, where do they culminate? In whom do they culminate? They find their climax in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without regret, God has extended his mercy to the nation of Israel through his gifts and through his calling. What is God's calling? God's calling is his authority, his sovereignty to name for himself and name for himself alone a people. How did God accomplish this in the Old Testament? He named the nation of Israel. How has he done that in the context of the New Testament? He has named for himself a people who by faith trust in the person of Christ. Friends, it's absolutely impossible for any one of us, regardless of who you are this morning, to ever be made right with God apart from God the person of Jesus apart from a calling. And God has extended that calling. What is that calling? That we can only be made right with God. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Listen how Paul will lament the rejection of the nation of Israel concerning these gifts and this calling. Is the calling of God irresistible, we might ask? Chapter 10, verse 21, down to chapter 11. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, Paul declares. God has not rejected His people. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom he foreknew. Do you know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? What's Israel's problem, friend? They have rejected God's message of salvation. Chapter 9, verse 30, 31, and 32 Verse 31, but, is, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith. Chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off And even if, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. Paul is not making an argument with this word irrevocable in this passage of scripture to communicate that God's message of Christ is irresistible. Paul has reminded us in a number of occasions on his missionary journeys that there are plenty of people who reject the message of Christianity. You might remember Paul's coming to to the city of Ephesus. Paul shows up in Ephesus, and the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19 that there he persuaded for three months. He reasoned with people. He persuaded with them concerning the kingdom of God. But what happened? They continued in their unbelief. Mittendorf, contemporary theologian, writes this, quote, after the fall into sin, humanity retains, quote, free will, end quote, understood, listen how he defines free will, understood as the ability to choose to disbelieve God and His Word, but understand this distinction, although not the ability to choose to believe or to continue to salvation in any way as it regards the conversation of God's divine sovereignty and human free will I think Mittendorf has forged a beautiful way forward in our understanding of holding these twin themes in relationship to one another humanity Israel, you me, your neighbor can reject this gospel message, but don't hear Paul saying that in humanity's free will that they can come to God in any possible conceivable way. Friend, God in his sovereignty has decided that there is only one way in which you or I can be made right with God. You can't just be saved any way that you choose. You can't just be made right with God in any way you choose. God himself is the one who has sovereignly elected, chosen, named the way in which you and I can be made right with God. And how has God sovereignly done that? By saying to you and me, you can only be made right with God by being justified by faith. Paul in 28 and 29 reminds us that God's purpose in Christ is to extend his mercy to all without exception. That includes all of the nation of Israel. But notice what he does here in verses 30 through 32. In verses 30 through 32, Paul reminds us that God has continued to extend his mercy now. Notice the number of times in verses 30 through 32 that Paul uses this word now. God continues to extend mercy now even to those who are unresponsive, even to those who do not believe, even to those who are unpersuaded concerning this truth. Look what Paul says here in verses 30, 31, and 32. For he continues to give an explanation of what he's just said, in verse 29, for just as you, who is the you here? Gentiles. For just as you were at one time disobedient, just as you at one time were disobedient, To God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they, that is Israel too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. I'd like to make just a brief argument. We can have a deeper conversation later if you would uh, desire for a, a slight change in our translation of this passage of scripture here with the words to be disobedient to be disobedient let me give you a uh, translation for just as you were formerly unpersuaded to God in other words the Gentiles were not persuaded to believe in God we'll look at that in Ephesians chapter 2 in just a few moments but now you were shown mercy by the unpersuadedness of these ones. You have now been persuaded to believe the gospel by the unpersuadedness of the Israelites. Thus also, now these were unpersuaded for your mercy in order that they might also now be shown mercy. As we think about this word here, to disbelieve. This word disbelieve oftentimes occurs in the text of scripture in relationship to not being persuaded to something that you have read or heard. Disbelieve, not being persuaded to something you have heard or to something you have read. My concern with un- with reading this text as disbelieve is that some of you might have a propensity to understand this disbelief in the concept of works. But Paul, again, is not preaching a works-based salvation. He's not telling us if we just do the right works, you can be made right with God. If you would just obey, just start doing it, just start living according to the text of Scripture, then everything's going to be all right. No, we're not justified by works. We are justified by Faith. What's the problem for ancient Israel? Ancient Israel, like the Gentiles, are not persuaded what they have heard concerning Jesus has not persuaded them to believe by faith. Notice with me real quickly to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. beginning in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time, what? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. But what happens, verse 12? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Like the Gentiles, so too now, ancient Israel is not being persuaded concerning who God is. Concerning the truth of Christ, they have rejected for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, that is the Gentiles, but now you have received mercy. Why? You've received mercy because of the unpersuadedness of the Jews, because of their disobedience. Verse 31, here is divine intention so that they too have now at this very moment been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now at this moment receive mercy. Notice the nowness of the gospel. Notice the urgency of the gospel. How does Paul put this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, verse 2? Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Paul is making a plea to the nation of Israel that has rejected this gospel message. He's making a plea to the nation of Israel that has been unpersuaded concerning this gospel message. Believe, trust in Jesus. When? Now, at this very moment, today, at this very time, at this very second, believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's divine intention that at this very moment, you, me, notice the end of verse 31, the nation of Israel now might receive mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God looking out at your state and my state of sinfulness, sinfulness, God is looking out at our state of being enemies of God. God is looking out at our state as being haters of God. God is looking out at our state of being unpersuaded concerning the truths of Scripture. And God is having compassion. He's having pity on you and me. And how has He extended that mercy? By the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus is God's expression of mercy to an unpersuaded, disobedient people. Would you see Jesus today and be persuaded? Not because of your goodness, not because you have anything to offer, not because you have a better way. Would you be persuaded by Jesus because you have no other way? And Jesus is the only way. For as Paul begs in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus is God's expression of mercy. For whom? You might have heard in my original argument for what this passage of Scripture says, God is worthy to be praised because he has extended his mercy to all without exception. I want to make the argument that God has indeed extended his mercy to all without exception and not to all without distinction. In other words, God has literally, in a very real way, extended grace, mercy, Jesus to all, every single individual person. Notice what the text of Scripture says in verse 32. For God has imprisoned, my translation says consigned, for God has imprisoned, who? To unpersuadedness. Who to disobedience? Who is the all? Some? A few chosen? What does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? Who has sinned? For all have sinned. Every single person has sinned. Notice what this text of Scripture is saying. God has extended, ta upon to all people. He has imprisoned them toward destruction. He has imprisoned them toward damnation. He has given them over to that which they've earned. For the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God, through Christ, look what God has done for those same top-on-top people. To the same extent that he has given all people to imprisonment, so too has God extended to all of those people mercy and grace through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not one person without exception that is beyond God's reach of bringing to faith in Christ. To all he has imprisoned in the bonds of sin. But notice the end of verse 32, that he may have mercy on ta ponta, that he may have mercy on all people. What is God's desire from the beginning? God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to faith in Christ. This is the hope. For your unpersuadedness, for my unpersuadedness, for your neighbor's unpersuadedness, for your children's unpersuadedness. To the same extent, friend, that we argue all people are sinners in need of a Savior, so too does the text of Scripture say that Jesus has been extended as God's sign of mercy. To all. Who is this all? Everyone without exception. We'll all believe. We'll all be persuaded by the gospel. We'll all hear this powerful gospel message, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation. We'll all hear that gospel message and be persuaded by faith to trust in Jesus. No, but Paul has conclusively argued that God is indeed faithful to his word, Romans 9, 6. Why? What's Paul's answer? Jesus. And as Paul looks at Jesus, look how he concludes Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Listen to the three questions he asks. For who has known the mind of the Lord from Isaiah 40 verse 13? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid from Job 41 verse 13, verse 36. No one. For through him alone. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever more. God is Christocentric. God is centered upon the person of Jesus. And when Paul looks at Jesus, he can't help but be thankful to God for what God and God alone has accomplished. Humility, the very character of God, compels you and me to approach the subject of salvation with a large measure of humility. Do we understand every aspect? No even in the context of this faith family. There are disagreements in terms of how we understand some of these issues. But can I tell you one thing upon which we do not disagree? We do not disagree upon the beauty and the glory of God in Christ. There is no other way to be justified by faith apart from the person of Christ. And Paul looks at that and says, oh my goodness. Rob, you can spend the rest of your life, brother. You can read everything you want to. Frankie, you can spend the rest of your life teaching Sunday school and and reading the text of Scripture. Miss Jackie, for 50 plus years you followed Jesus. Jesus. And if the Lord would give you 50 more years, you could follow Jesus again. And you know what, friends? We would never exhaust the depth and the richness and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And Paul does what he's done throughout. He grounds his doxology in the text of scripture, and he quotes for us from Isaiah chapter 40, and then again from Job, chapter, from Job chapter 41. And both of these passages of scripture are exceedingly interesting. Here in Isaiah chapter 40, this text falls in a larger uh, context of passages of scripture, and they're essentially disputations between God and, and, and uh, exilic Israel. Israel is in exile, Israel thinks she knows better than God, and and God is indeed in these texts of Scripture chastising the nation of Israel. Uh, God is reminding ancient Israel here in this section of a text in Isaiah that he absolutely opposes their arrogance to think that nation of Israel could in any measurable way bring a charge against God. Who does ancient Israel think they are to question one aspect of God's character. Particularly, who is Israel to question God's authority in history or over history and God's authority in creation? And so God responds, verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the answer? No one. Or who has been the Lord's counselor? No one. And then he turns to Job. You might remember in Job, Job chapter 38 and 39, the Lord answers Job. And it's a beautiful depiction of God's power and God's might, God's sovereignty over his creation. And here in Job chapter 40 and and 41, God responds to show his incredible might and his incredible power by mentioning the names of two beasts. And these two beasts are supposed to be the greatest, the most powerful beasts that God has created. Who are the two most incredible beasts that God has created? Leviathan. Leviathan and Bohemoth, thank you, Corey, and Bohemoth. And when God looks at Leviathan and Bohemoth, even though humanity looks at those two, crea- two creatures and they, and they run scared, even though humanity looks at those two creatures and says, oh my, how, mu- how much power and how much, how much uh, <clears throat> power do these two animals have? When God looks at Leviathan and Bohemoth, they appear to God as nothing but a little, little bitty ants over whom he has complete and total authority. God is reminding Job in this passage of Scripture that God and God alone is greater than anything. And when Paul takes these two passages of Scripture... He is reminding us by the quoting of these two passages of scriptures of two things. One, God's mighty acts. And friend, there is no mightier act of God than that which has been revealed in creation. And number two, that God has complete and total authority and control over creation. So Israel, when you're prone to wonder, has God failed in his promises to his word? When you and I are prone to wonder, has God failed in his promises to his word? Be reminded, God has not failed. He is greater than anything. He reigns sovereign over all of his creation. And Paul concludes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When Paul looks at Christ, these words remind us of his reflection from Colossians chapter 1 as he peered upon the beauty of Christ in the context of of that passage of Scripture. And listen to these words. Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. You don't have to wonder, friend. Paul exclaims, has God extended his mercy toward me? The answer is yes. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and be saved. Look to Jesus and be persuaded. Why? For in Him, and by Him, and through Him. Do you, and me, and everyone else find our ultimate meaning and being life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that has been extended to us through the person of Christ. And we marvel this morning, Lord, at your ability to draw people to faith in Christ through this gospel message. And as we conclude this text of scripture with the same heartbeat as the apostle Paul too, so Lord, do we pray that indeed you might draw people to faith in Christ. Lord, this morning I pray for your church. Yet through this text of scripture, you might increase our love and affection for Christ. That we might see his might and his beauty and his glory and be persuaded to believe. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on God's word? Friend, if you're here today and you remain in disbelief, if you remain unpersuaded, Would you hear this text of scripture today and be persuaded of God's intention to extend his mercy to you? And in doing so, would you at this very moment now believe in Jesus? For those of us who by faith have trusted in Christ, would you recommit your life today as you reflected upon the beauty of Christ? Would you pledge a new to God to live your life every day in fulfillment of this text of scripture, that it might be said of your life that you have joined in honoring and glorifying Christ and all that you do. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond together. And our corporate response of singing. If you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front, but you don't have to see myself or Pastor Travis. Please feel free to turn to a neighbor seated next to you, for there are plenty of people in this room who believe in this gospel message and will be glad to share with you the truth of how you can trust in Christ. Maybe God has persuaded you that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. And thirdly, if you'd like for myself or Pastor Travis just to pray with you, that indeed your love for Christ might be increased. Or pray with you for a neighbor or a coworker, or a family member. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Let's stand and corporately respond.